Thanks to Lightstream for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Pay off your credit card balances and save with a fixed rate credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Apply today at lightstream.com slash dreamjob. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. Well, I'm kind of floating. My feet haven't touched the ground because two nights ago I interviewed Matthew McConaughey and um, it was epic. And I hope you're subscribed to the show because that episode is coming out in just a few weeks and I cannot wait. Oh, it was so good. I really felt like I like broke through another whole level of like what this life can really be. Just like being in his company, he is such a prince. He's just such a kind, human, good citizen with such powerful energy. So excited about it. Um, also, how good was Monday's episode with Christy Wright? She's incredible. She's incredible. If you want to get in on more of that good stuff, come join us in the Arrive community. It's amazing. It really is amazing. We're there to inspire each other. We're there to hold each other's hand as we meet our resistance and crush our goals. It's such an incredible place to be. If you really want that inspiration and that direction month after month, I'm there to coach you once a month. We have these guest expert sessions once a month. My team is in there giving you homework and we put you in accountability groups. It's pretty cool. If you want more information, you can go to kathyheller.com slash arrive community. Come on and join us. All right. Now today, really, really cool. For all of you who are Sex and the City fans, I think you're going to be especially excited because the critically acclaimed, internationally bestselling author Candace Bushnell is here today. You've probably read some of her amazing books like Sex and the City, The Carrie Diaries, Lipstick Jungle, One Fifth Avenue, Summer in the City, Is There Still Sex in the City, and her latest book, Rules for Being a Girl. Sex and the City was the basis for her now classic HBO hit series, of course, and the two blockbuster films, and Lipstick Jungle also became a popular TV series on NBC, as did The Carrie Diaries on The CW, and she has another project in development with Paramount Television, which we're going to talk about today. Candace is also the winner of the 2006 Matrix Award for Book and a recipient of the Albert Einstein Spirit of Achievement Award. She radiates so much passion and enthusiasm, and you can really tell how much she believes in what she's putting out in the world. I think you're going to just love her energy and her dedication towards her craft. So without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Candace Bushnell. Candace, this is really fun to have you. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. I'm really excited to be here. Well, you've connected with millions and millions and millions of humans through your incredible work, and your work has opened up the world in so many ways and it's liberated people and it's made people laugh and cry in the best ways. Will you kind of take us through that story just a little bit before it all broke for you? Will you tell us sort of where you were at and what you were dreaming of and, and how you sort of came to be as successful as you are? Well, you know, it's interesting because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently because I want to do a one woman show which is, you know, a one-woman show, it's really just, it would just be like the interesting stories of my life and like finding an arc, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is that for me, it started at a very early age. And, you know, the other thing is everybody feels like, oh, Sex and the City, it just... You know, it happened, it was 34 was when I got the column. Wow. And people kind of think like, oh, <laughs> you were just what? Like going to parties or something beforehand? And then you wrote, it's like, no. It was something that I've been, I've been like working towards it. I mean, really, 
in some way or another, probably since I was eight. And I decided that I really wanted to be a writer. And by that, I meant a novelist, somebody who wrote fiction. And I also had to be a feminist. Yeah. Like in some way, I had to be a feminist. And I grew up in the 60s. And the world was so sexist. Like, I mean, I was eight years old. I'm like, I can't believe this. Like everywhere you went, it was like gendered. And then when the kids were, I mean, one of the things that was great was like all the kids like played together. And then that wasn't so gendered when we were like little kids, but it was in what you could do and what you couldn't do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also what they would tell women It wasn't just that you could do certain things and you couldn't do other things for gender reasons. It was also that you couldn't think certain things. You know, you couldn't be angry because it wasn't nice. And girls were sugar and spice. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of really like indoctrination into what it meant to be female. Yeah. And it was something that I just really noticed when I was a kid. And I really felt like I have to do something about this. Wow. And I even like remember when I had this moment that was like an epiphany of, you know, this is what you have to do. That's amazing. And you know, that's so striking in your work that while it's really funny, it's really serious. Like you can tell that there's something really serious behind the whole thing. And I love that about you. I love that there's so much pink, but there's so much depth in the sparkle. There's so much underneath it. No, I mean, I, you know, when I was a kid, I remember I was talking to my father, you know, and my father was tough. And when I was a kid, he was considered a genius, Because he had, you know, invented one of the first fuel cells they used in the Apollo space rocket. Oh my God, that's it? That's all you could do? Oh my God. And our family, we had a very, very middle class life. I mean, I kind of thought we were rich, but when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, we were really middle class. But, you know, that was like, oh, your father's a genius, you know, and so you've got to do something too. And I would always fight with him. And one time I was ranting about something. I know it was some kind of injustice, some kind of thing about like, why are boys allowed to do this and it's wrong and blah, blah, blah. And he said, your message is really valid. But he said, you have to learn how to deliver it. He said, if you're telling people, they will not listen. And he said, all you are, are right. And you may be right, but if you yell at people and you tell them that they're stupid, they will not listen to anything that you say. That's really, truly genius advice. And it's like when you're a parent and you have to hide the zucchini and the zucchini muffin. And a lot of times when I'm talking to people who have a passion and they want to be a songwriter or a screenwriter, they want to do all these amazing things, but they don't realize that people... They want to buy what they want and then you can give them what they need. They're not going to buy what they need, right? It's, it's like you got to give them this thing that they think they want. And oh my God, are you so good at doing both of those things? That is so cool that you remember having that conversation because boy, did you really take that all the way? Oh, well, 
Thank you. My father would be happy to hear that. Well, I mean, what's a better package than like Sarah Jessica Parker and Jimmy choose to then deliver all of these messages that over the seasons literally broke women free from the taboo of all these conversations that we never allowed ourselves to have, even with our friends. But we saw them having these conversations like, oh, maybe I can talk about my own pleasure or the fact that I don't know if I even want to have kids or don't want to have kids. Like all these conversations were so not allowed until you. I I think that you changed that for all of society. Thank you. I mean, for me, it was something that, you know, I just experienced so much like female power and like inspiration in a sense in my own life when I was in New York and I was 30, 31. And I had, you know, all these really cool girlfriends and nobody was following the I'm going to get married path or whatever. We were all ambitious. We just wanted things. We wanted a life and we wanted a freedom and we wanted to be able to, in a sense, be ourselves, which sometimes would be like, hey, we all ended up sleeping with the same guy and we're okay with it, which, you know, a lot, that's like women aren't supposed to think that, you know, to, you know, sometimes we don't find men interesting at all. And we really, really, you know, would prefer to talk to each other. And the other thing is, I feel like, you know, my friends were all, or they all seemed to be ambitious to me, like wanting you know, wanting to do something in the world. And then we would, you came up against this, uh, yes, but you don't fit the blueprint. You're not married, you're single, you're 35. And you know what? Heterosexual oh my God, 35. Can you even imagine? What a 35. curse. <laughs> heterosexual men are saying to me, because I interviewed them, what do you think about a woman who's, 35. Well, you know, it's really past her prime. And in order to be sexually attracted to her, I'd have to like know her really, really well and somehow really like her as a person and then somehow find that attractiveness. But it seems like a lot of work. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, I think one of the things that Sex and the City did, which was great, was it sent a message like this is a different way to live. Not saying that it's maybe the best way to live, but on the other hand, you know, the married and having children, I mean, we also kind of have to question, like, is that the best way to live? Because, you know, for a lot of women, that doesn't turn out to be the best way to live. Right. The whole idea is that who says they know what's right for everybody or like, this is the way to live a life. It's it's really not the case. Um, And so going back to this column, so you gave us some backstory, which is really, really powerful about how you sort of knew there was, there was so much more to it. There was really a calling in there. And then you start writing this column and this column turns into this unbelievable, you know, raving success hit TV show. When did that happen? How, how many like weeks, years, months into that column, did you have a hint that this might be something or did someone call? What was that process like? I have to tell you, I knew like the day that I got that column, that that was it. 
that it was like my big break because, you know, I'd come to New York in the, really in the late seventies and it was a time of, you know, everybody was going to make it and they were going to get their big break. And people had a mythology about how you had to get your big break as an artist. And, you know, you really have to put in the time and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there'd be conversations like, you know, a friend of mine would be like, you have to just do you, you know, yeah. just do you. That's amazing. So at the time when I got that column, it was my idea that I was going to get myself a column. And I had a column that was in Hamptons Magazine that was a precursor to mm-hmm. the City. And I did it with Christina Cuomo. Mm-hmm. What a small world. Jeez. A super small world. That's crazy. And everybody was like in their kind of 20s and it was all share houses and the whole thing. And I wrote about it and it was shocking to people and they were all reading it on the beach. And it was, (laughs) it was was not even stapled together and it was called the human cartoon. And so then after that, because I had this idea that I wanted to be like Dickens, I needed to eat. I needed a <laughs> weekly column mm-hmm. and I was pursuing it. And then the New York Observer did the gossip columnist left and I tried out for it. And this other guy tried out for it and it wasn't good because truly 75% of the stuff that people call you and they're like, ah, you find out that it's not true but I really wanted to have my own column. And I think that Peter Kaplan, the editor in chief must've known that. And then he came up to me one day and he said, do you want to have your own column? And I was like, finally, somebody gets it. (laughs) Give me my own column. And I knew exactly what to do because I had already been doing it since I was 19. And I first arrived in New York. Yeah. And I was like writing about people in the city, you know, writing for women's magazines. So it was like, I was already doing it. It was just in a different venue instead of being in a women's magazine. It was in a publication that was 60% male readers. Yep. And you know, when that men are reading something, it has more value. Yeah. So where I was kind of like dismissed as like, oh, she writes for women's magazines. You know, well, now I was writing for The Observer. So now maybe I should be taken seriously. Yep. You know, but the day that I got the column, I knew I was going to nail it because I felt like I knew what I, exactly what I had to do. Yeah. Now, did I think it would become a TV series or a movie? Never. I was only thinking, I'm writing my first book. You know, I mean, that book was reviewed in Time Magazine. I yeah. was like... Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, it was really about, you know, writing. And, I, you know, at that time, Brett Easton Ellis and I, like, sometimes, you know, we would run into Joan Didion. And Joan Didion was like, Candace, I read your column and I, I see you are writing a novel. You are really <laughs> a novelist. And I was like, oh, my God. Yep. So, you know, those <laughs> kinds of things would happen. and. You know, I guess in a way it was such a small world that those things were really significant and drove you. I mean, you weren't looking to the whole world for like affirmation, Mm -hmm. where people do now. It was just this little group 
Boy, did it take over the world. I love this conversation, but before we keep going, let's just thank our sponsor. If you're like most people, you have a balance on your credit cards and a higher interest rate than you'd like. Lightstream can help you turn those balances into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate and start saving money. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Refinance your high interest credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Rates start at 5.95 APR with auto pay and excellent credit. The rate is fixed, so it will never go up over the life of the loan. You can even apply online and get a loan from 5,000 to 100,000, and there are absolutely no fees. I went on their website and thought it was really easy to navigate. They even have a cool chart so you can get an estimate on your monthly payments and the interest rate based on what the loan is used for, like home improvement or credit card consolidation, the loan amount, and how long it would take to pay it off. Our listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get that discount is to go to lightstream.com slash dreamjob. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash dream job. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash dream job for more information. What was that like for you? Like when you were first standing on that set and you're like, oh my God, this is so realer than real. And it's amazing. Like everything about that show, the way it was written, the way it was shot, the way it was casted, it's lightning in a bottle. It's one in a zillion. It really is. And there are just so many factors that go into it. And, you know, I think part of it was the material was, it was very strong and it was new. And the people who were working on it, they really wanted to bring that feeling to it. I mean, after I sold it, there was never like, oh, this is going to be a sure thing. I mean, that wasn't really until kind of like the second season, it really kind of took off. Yeah. So honestly, I know this sounds crazy, but for me, it was like one of the other projects that I was doing at the time. I mean, I had another TV show that was on before Sex and the City was on. Wow. I had a TV show called Sex, Lies, and Video Clips. Yep. Wow. And so actually on the first day of shooting, I was on the set. It was like the very beginning of VH1. Uh-huh. And I was with like one of my best friends. And, you know, we were just like, we own this town. <laughs> and then, you know, I walked down the West Side Highway and then, you know, it was like the beginning of shooting the pilot for Sex in the City. And it was on the Hudson River and... You know, all these people were like, oh, this is because of you. Mm -hmm. Well, that lasts for like a minute. Uh, You know, it's interesting from the outside because from my perspective, it was always you. Like you, for me, were synonymous with it the entire time. I don't know. It's a hat. You can't separate it. You know, a lot of people read the book and they're like, I hate this book. It's not like the TV series. I don't see it at all. But of course, for me, I know where everything in the first two seasons comes from. Yeah. Yeah. I read, Darren wrote, I don't know, 30 or 40 drafts of the script. And then I worked with the writers on the first two seasons. I mean, there's so many things in those first two seasons that I'm like, that actually happened or something very similar to that actually happened to me. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, I mean, it seems like a silly question because I feel like everyone's going to guess that it's Carrie, but do you feel like you relate to 
all of them or do you feel like you're sort of a combination of two of them? How, how do you feel about yourself and where you show up in there? You know, I mean, it's hard for me to say. I would always say I'm a carry character, yeah. but not, but the romantic element, no. Like, you know, the Carrie's looking for her soulmate. Oh, yeah. That was not me. In fact, that was like the one thing that Darren and I, we argued about at the beginning. Because he was like, every woman wants to get married and she wants to find her soulmate. And I was like, no. Yeah. It's not my message. Yeah. But it became more and more that way. And, you know, it makes sense because, you know, at a certain point, it's like, the audience in a sense. The audience likes to watch those interactions, but I, I love that you just said that. And I, I really wish in a way that it would have been that way because I think there's so many women now, so many women in their forties who are single and they're actually okay. And then they worry like, is there something wrong with me that I really love my life, that I really feel filled up with my work and my friends and I like where I live. Like I built myself a career and I'm happy and I have a cute puppy and I like my house and I I date a cute guy on occasion. Like, why should I be shamed for that? And I I do think that there's a problem where people assume you're missing something if you're not in a, like you're really at a deficit. Whereas like how many married people do you know? who feel pretty miserable. You know, what are we talking about? And I, I think that it's powerful that you, you felt that way. But unfortunately, I guess they didn't think that would make as good of, you know, TV. I mean, the more popular Chicklet became, which, you know, I never felt like I started off writing, you know, what ended up becoming calling Chicklet. But because um, I think it was a bit ahead. But, you know, there was more and more pressure to put in these happily ever after stories. Mm-hmm. And that's where the world was in like the 2000s. You know, there was a lot of money. People were going way into debt and there was a lot of luxury goods. And that was a time of crazy weddings, bridezillas. I mean, if you came to New York, if you came to America at that time, you'd think American women are only crazed with getting married. I mean, it was a very unfeminist time. Yeah. You've had so much success, like as we're sitting here talking and then you're like, oh, and then trading up. Oh, I had actually a show before that, Sex Lives. I'm like, oh my God, that's right. It's been a nonstop spigot of like this floodgate of like constant gem one after another it's very unusual and you know that i mean most people if they do one one great thing it's unbelievable like it's amazing right and you've done so many things and and so much of it has been so wildly appreciated when you're talking to someone who aspires to do creative work and to be able to not just do it as a hobby, but they, they want to be able to do this, you know, even have one ounce of the success that you've had. What would you advise them to do? I mean, for me, it's like, it's the most important thing. You know, I really feel like I would give things up. You know, it's like, yeah, I had some chances to get married. I had some chances to, you know, be with somebody and have kids, but I never took that road. On the other hand, I've got the two dogs and I mean, the fact is like, I'm actually really happy. It's like, you have to have stuff to work on. You know what I'm saying? Like people yeah, have that's a interesting purpose too. in life. So I think it's worth doing if you really can embrace it as your purpose. 
if you feel like, mm, you know, I don't really know if 100% that's going to be my purpose. And, you know, maybe I would really rather have a, a life that is more in line with what everybody else has, which is fine. And it's great. You know, I think there's like nothing wrong with, you know, anything that's conventional, as long as it works, it satisfies your passions, yeah. you know, satisfies yeah. something inside of you. Yeah. So, you know, that's what it's about. And, and, you know, there are tons of people who do both and, and I'm just, no, I am not that person. Yep. There's something so beautiful when you're talking, you're so um, enthusiastic throughout this whole interview. There is an unrelenting sort of like wonder and youth to like who you are and how you speak and even the way you recall things and how you still get excited about it, remembering moments. So when you are looking at work, I'm just curious, when you're looking at a show or a script or a book or you're reading a novel, what makes you love it? If you have advice for writers, like what do you think makes writing stand out? I think it's something that the writer has to love it too. You know, like some part of them has to be really engaged with the work. You know, I think that's what really shows is like if the person who's writing it loves it. Yeah. And you have to love it because you have to read it so many times. Yeah. And, you know, there are times when you're like, I can't summon it up. <laughs> but it's like you kind of have to get into a head. Now, that does not mean that other people are going to love it. You know, I read a lot of stuff that it's like, it just doesn't interest me. Mm -hmm. But other people love it. I mean, there are just so many different kinds of creativity. And, you know, people have so many different kinds of talents. You know, not everybody has the same you know, strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. yeah. You've had so much success. Have you ever had any rejection? Like, have you ever had to deal with no? And how did you get over that? Because it seems like you haven't had any rejection at all. Right. That's so wrong. Really? You wouldn't know it from here. <laughs> no. I've had so much rejection. I mean, like, you know, from the beginning, I was like a little 19 year old, like go out and sell stories and, you know, and I started selling stuff early on. So, you know, professional people are pretty harsh. Yeah. They would just be like, it's not good. And I, I worked for self magazine. And I mean, sometimes I'd spend like a week writing a story about mascara. And then oh I know, so it was just like, it's a lot of craft. You know, part of writing is sometimes it's like you just have to do it. And guess what? You're not going to do anything with it. And it might not work. I mean, I've written a hundred pages of a book, a hundred pages, and I've thrown it out. Wow. I've done that at least six times. Wow. You know, it's like you go on something and it, it's just not working. And people will be like, it's not working. I talk to so many people and they always think that they have like a business problem and they need, they need help figuring out something that they don't know how to do. And what it always comes back to is a fear of rejection problem. Like no matter what, it always comes back to people don't want to hit publish or they don't want to send the email or they don't, because they're afraid 
that they're going to hear no. They're afraid someone won't like it. Someone will say something negative about them. And I, I'm hearing what you're saying. And because you've been you know, successful and your work has been so widely popular, I'm sure that you've had your dose of reading bad reviews or some people don't like it. What's your advice yeah. to other people of how to deal with when people say, this isn't good, or I don't like what you do. Like, how do you keep going when that comes your way? Well, first of all, it depends on who's saying it. And for me, I mean, that would really only be my editor and my agent. Okay. And bullied me, my editors, and I've had a lot of editors over the years, but it's like, those are the two people you have to please the people who are paying you. You know, I look at my books on Amazon, like Four Blondes, I think, was one of the first books that was ever on Amazon. And it still has like two and a half stars. So from the beginning, this whole thing of then these people reviewing and blah, blah, blah. And and then in reviews, I mean, reviews are very very political. So, you know, people have an idea about who you are as a writer, what you have accomplished or what you haven't, what credit they're going to give you, what category they're going to keep you in. You know, all of these things go into reviews. And I mean, for instance, my publisher now is Morgan Entrican. He's like the publisher of the year, you wow. know, like he's yeah. amazing. His books win all prizes and he's super literary and he published Sex in the City and Four Blondes. It's like, if Morgan likes it, it's good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because he knows better than anybody. Mm-hmm. So that's what keeps me going. Because if yeah. I read the reviews, you know, people don't understand one's work. They're looking for something. They get something else that bothers them. So I think as a writer, one of the things I've learned is like, ah, you know what? I have to keep going, but I don't feel like, God, someone like Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, who everybody loves her work. You know, everybody loves her. I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. Like not everybody loves me. And that, and this time that we live in where likes are so important that's a bit scary yeah it really is but that's the part where I have to be like you know I want to write something that is commercial in the sense that structurally it really works and you know you're going to turn the pages and there's a logic and you hit the points for what it should look like a Mm -hmm. novel But at the same time, you know, people may not necessarily like the message or the fact that maybe there isn't a message or that to them, all the characters are unlikable because they have no experience of, you know, encountering any of these kinds of people and they don't have the imagination, Mm -hmm. you know, to imagine them. And that's fine. Yeah. Because there are all different kinds of books for all different kinds of people. And the other thing is, will people criticize you to the point for you to stop writing? Oh, yes, they will. Mm. And, you know, plenty of those people, I promise you, are women. 
So, I mean, that's one wow. of the wow. realities. And, you know, I mean, I've had times when I've gotten like so many bad reviews. My agent was like, I don't know how you can stand it. And I was like, you know, I can stand it because I know like who I am and, you know, that this is something that I have to keep doing. It's risky because publishing is a business. And if you don't sell, you're not getting published. Right. Okay. I mean, that's the reality. And, you know, there are exceptions and there's much, much more self-publishing, which is great. That takes a certain amount of money. Yeah. yeah. And a certain amount of effort. And But you know what? People make it work. So listen, anybody who can go around the system and monetize it, it's, you know, it's great. But that's one of the realities. Yeah. I love that you just said so point blank. Will people criticize you to the point where you will want to stop writing? Yes. I love that because you're assuming it. Like, yeah, assume that that will happen, right? Like go into it knowing that if you're creative, you are going to be met with that and, and you are going to have to prepare ahead of time. How are you going to deal with that? And that's the truth because so many creative people give up so, so, so fast because they don't get that that's probably coming because there is so much subjectivity and people do see what they want to see and not everyone's going to like it. And I love that on the flip side of that, you were able to say, and even though I feel like I'm going to be me and keep writing, even if people don't like it, I still want to please my publisher because I want to eat. And I want to, I actually want to be a grown up and have a career. I don't just want to have this as a hobby. And I think John Williams and Randy Newman and anybody who writes for someone else, like on some level, good for them. Like look at the careers that they've had because yes, I think Steven Spielberg does care if the studio likes it. I don't think he's going to say, I don't care. You know, I mean, this is, you know, the reality of the creative businesses. Who's writing the check? Right. Somebody is writing that check. And that somebody wants something. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just the reality. And in publishing, in the creative businesses, people get around this in different ways. Like you have best-selling authors that, you know, their books are really similar, but they're like TV series where everybody, you know, wants it. And those books make a lot of money. Wow. And speaking of of writing, so... Is there still Sex in the City? Tell us all the things that you, you're, you're doing with this. Well, it's coming out in paperback. Got it. And, you know, it's really like what happens if the happily ever after doesn't work out? Mm-hmm. So I was in a time in my life where it was like the, I called it middle-aged madness. It's <laughs> this time in your 50s when like everything feels like it's going wrong And it's a barrage of all kinds of emotions, you know, like parents might die because it's just, you know, it's just going to happen. It's a technicality. Life, yeah. You know, it's like, and so there's certain losses. A lot of people lose their careers at that time. A lot of people just kind of lose their pilot light. Relationships fall apart and then people have to start over, but they're starting over in a time when they never expected to have to start over, which would be their fifties, which was supposed to be a time when you would, nobody even thinks about people over their fifties, you know, that's changing. And it's like story essays 
And I just think it's really funny. It's very tongue-in-cheek. And then there's Rules for Being a Girl, which I co-wrote with Katie Catugno. It's a young adult book. And it's about a high school senior who feels like she has everything figured out. She's got it all lined up. She's going to go to Brown. And of course, her favorite teacher is her English teacher. And one day he, you know, he tries to kiss her. He Oh my God. Yeah. Says, you know, come up to my apartment. Oh, I want to give you this book. <sighs> and she goes up. She's like, this is weird, but okay. You know, and you know, everyone loves his teacher. And, and then he tries to kiss her. So it's like what she does next and her thoughts and her feelings and, maybe it wasn't a big deal and she tries to tell her best friend and her best friend is like, you know, are you sure you weren't giving off some sort of vibe? And so it kind of goes through the patterns of reactions that we have to, you know, sexually inappropriate behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like, oh, it's your fault or don't get the guy in trouble. And this character, Marin, does speak up And the teacher ends up retaliating against her. Wow. And I mean, to me, it was very interesting to work on this because it's so, it really is the pattern that we see, you know, today with the Harvey Weinsteins. It's like this pattern of predatory behavior. And then when they don't get what they want, there's a retaliation. Yeah. And Katie is a great young adult writer. She's like 40 and she's written like 10 books. It's like, Oh my God, that's insane. That must have felt so good to write that book rules for being a girl, especially now it's really, really important. I mean, I I've been sitting here thinking during this whole thing that's been going on the last few years, like, Oh my God, I've had so many moments like that. I just lived through them. You know, I, I've had a boss once who was a doctor at UCLA. When I first moved to LA, I was like, assistant in his office, just I needed a job. And I said to him once, okay, well, do you need anything else? And I was going to leave for the day. And he said, well, you can sit on my lap. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, so, and he's like an oncologist, you know, and there's like people needing chemo in the waiting room. And then I'm like looking at him and I'm like nervous. I'm like, don't know what to do. And then he like walks over to me and like pulls me back to like sit on his lap. And he goes, do you want to come see my art collection? I live in Homeby Hills, like five minutes from here. And I say to him, um, I, okay. I didn't know what to do. Oh and, my and, God. Yes. And the next thing I'm doing, I'm walking with him towards his car. Meanwhile, he's leaving these patients in there who are waiting for literally like chemo. Right. So we start walking to his car. And then like last minute I said, you know what? I'm going to take my car. I'll follow you because I got to go somewhere after. I didn't, I didn't know. I was like fumbling for words. I was 23 years old, like looking for the words. I didn't know what I was doing. I was shaking. And I'm like, we get out of the parking lot. I like make the left. He makes the left. He makes the right. I make right. And then I just left. And of course I never went back and never got the paycheck. And, that job. and yeah. And you didn't know get the paycheck and all that. You know what? That's happened to me. A similar story. I mean, that's what these things do. You know, I mean, to me, it's a real... <sighs> the meaning of the woman, but reducing her to your, it's, oh, this is only about sex. When, you know, you think it's about business and you're going to be taken seriously as a person. And 
you know, what you get is this, you know what? A little pat on the head. Guess what? You really aren't of any value except sexually to yeah. me. Yeah. Which is a message like that happens to me, happened to me so much when I first moved to New York. I mean, it's really one of the reasons why I worked for women's magazines because yeah. I was like, I cannot work in a place with guys because already it's like as common as chewing gum. Yeah. And what are you supposed to do? You don't know what to do. And you end up, I mean, you're losing income. I mean, that's the thing about it that to me is like egregious. You know, it's like compliment women's spa, all this, that's fine. It's like, no, get the money. I'm telling you. Yeah. I mean, this is, that's what they deny you is, you know, we'll let you into the office, but you're only really here at my pleasure. Mm-hmm. And you don't collect your paycheck. You don't go back to that place. Yeah. I, I mean, I literally have so many worse stories than that. And like you said early on, one of the most powerful things you, you said, like when you were a kid, one of the things was like, you're not allowed to be angry. I think that, I mean, in and of itself, just that, because women do become such pleasers. Everyone's got, I will set myself on fire to make sure everyone's okay because that's my job. No, it's not. No, it's not. Like, I feel like I am a recovering you know, people pleaser because I yeah, witnessed so you definitely right. It's too much, and that's why people love your work because the women unabashedly say what they need to say, and we don't get to do that in our own life, and we want to live vicariously through these women. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for being that in the world. You are so lovable. I, I can't get over how humble you are for how successful and how talented you are. Tell us where we can find you and tell us what, you know, what we can do to keep supporting your work. Well, buy the books. Buy the book, buy the book. And, you know, I think that's, you know, just the most important thing is, you know, you want people to buy your books. You want people to read them. And, you know, I've got Instagram. Is there still (laughs) Sex in the City? I sold it before I finished the book went to some people in Hollywood and then Paramount. They were really passionate and they said they wanted to buy it. So I was like, great, that's fabulous. <laughs> and then it's just a slow process. So yes, yes. we've made so many changes. We're not even calling it, is there still sex in the city? We're calling it in real life. Okay. Because we're going to try to get to like what it's like in real life. Yeah. You know, so we're in the process of doing it. So is it kind of like a sequel? I mean, will any of the characters reappear or not really? No, no, it's it's totally different characters. And in fact, the characters are actually younger than the characters would be in sex. Like the characters are 50, maybe late 40s, but it's different characters. Awesome. Well, that's really, really exciting. And uh, thanks for sharing with us who you are and the whole behind the scenes of your journey. It was really neat to just get to connect with you as a person because you're so filled with life. You are like so alive. Thank you, Candace, for being here. What a special treat. Thanks, guys. That was super fun. 
Talking to Candace was so much fun. Okay. Here are the takeaways. Number one, your message is valid, but you have to learn how to deliver it. If you want people to listen. Number two, you have to do you, you have to look after yourself. Number three, love the work, be engaged with the work. That's what shows. Number four, there are different kinds of creativity and talents. Not everyone has the same gifts. Number five, part of the craft is just doing it. Even if you don't do anything with it or it doesn't work out. Number six, not everyone will love you and that's okay. Know who you are and that this is the something you have to keep doing. Number seven, everyone's story deserves to be told. You never know who needs to hear it so that they know they're not alone. Okay, now let's celebrate your wins. So Claire wrote this in our Facebook group and she said, I celebrated a year of my podcast launch. Thank you, Kathy, for introducing me to so many beautiful people on the Everyone Can Podcast course. 14,000 downloads in one year and almost 3,500 downloads for September. Who knew? Claire, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. I remember sitting with you on one of our group calls and how you showed up with so much courage to share your story and you stuck with all the hurdles and hiccups along the way. And now you have a podcast with over 14,000 downloads. That's absolutely incredible. You guys go listen to Claire's podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's called Slimming Stories Around the World. Congrats, Claire. I'm so excited to see this keep growing. Okay. The next win is from Annie. She said, I let myself play. I did not begin my week with the intention of starting a line of hand-painted earrings, but they might be my favorite thing I ever accidentally made. Annie, I love this. There's so much magic that can unfold when we take off the pressure of having to create something perfectly or do it with some end goal in mind. Those earrings are so beautiful. You have such a gift and I hope you allow yourself to play more often so you can uncover gems like this. Everyone go check out Annie's awesome earrings. You can go see them on her Instagram at wholehearted empire. Thank you guys so much for being here. I know that your time is the most valuable thing you have. Do you know what's coming? Matthew McConaughey and Martha Beck. There's so many cool episodes coming. So go make sure you subscribe on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. I promise to keep making good on the fact that you spend your time here. I promise to keep showing up with my personal best. It means the world to me that you're here. And I'm curious, did this episode inspire you? Can you think of one person who would love to hear this story, who loves sex in the city, who would be inspired by Candace's story. So share it with them or post about the show on your Instagram and tag me at Kathy.Heller and I'll repost it. I love you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you Monday.
Like a soldier.